just heard was written by the man I'm talking to today, Steve Strongman, who, who wrote the song Leaving, and you kindly allowed me to use it as an intro to this entire podcast. And thank you very much for doing that. Well, That's thank awesome. you. Um, Steve, this is my 50th episode, I believe, wow. and um, I'm honored to have you as the 50th guest of this podcast. It's my honor to be here. Thank you so much. I've listened to uh, uh, several of your others now. I'm starting to get addicted to all of them, so they're very cool. Thank you. So you know that we usually begin, and I've known you for a while, but I don't know a lot about your past. Mm -hmm. How did you first get into music? Um, I first got into music um, uh, when I was 10 years old. I don't know the exact reason why, but I decided to come home and, and tell my mother that I wanted to uh, play guitar. And um, you don't remember what triggered that? I don't, I don't remember the actual trigger. I know I, I talked to lots of people and they can say, I saw this on TV or I saw this movie. And I was always interested in music and my house was very musical in the sense that um, I have three brothers, four boys, and my mom was always listening to the radio. It was on constantly. So there was that. And my best friend at the time, a wonderful guy named Eric Ofak, he um, was taking accordion lessons. And I remember um, that I said to Eric, you know, I was really, I want to play guitar. And he said, my accordion teacher, actually, um, he, he plays guitar and he teaches. So every week I would go with Eric to, uh, he'd go to an accordion lesson and I'd sit out and wait for him. And then they'd wait half an hour while I had my guitar lesson. Had you decided to take the accordion instead of the guitar, do you think it would have been you were taking a different career path? <laughs> it may have worked out like that. But um, yeah, and then I got, I got really serious about playing guitar, I think when I was probably about 15 is when I, I really started to, to get into it. And, and uh, in those early lessons, my accordion teacher, if I had done my writing and, or reading rather and read the music and be able to play the piece... At the end of it, as a little, you know, okay, let's have some fun. He would always play a twelve-bar blues. Really? Yeah. And uh, it did that became, mean anything to you? Well, I just knew that I loved it, and I loved the way that it sounded. And uh, I would come in, and after the week, if my lesson wasn't great, he noticed that the blues stuff that I was playing, or the blues and rock bass stuff that I was playing, was actually getting quite good. And he'd say, "Well, I can see where you're spending your time all the time." <laughs> but yeah, that was um, that. That was like the very beginning for me. And uh, but initially, when you wanted to learn, was it you wanted to learn and to play like so and so, or was that that yeah. initially that came after? And I only played acoustic guitar too. Right. Uh, I never had an electric guitar um, until I was. Uh, about 16 is when, when I, my mom bought me an electric guitar. And, uh, that, Did that change your world? That changed my entire world because I was playing. My older brothers were influencing me with, with uh, really great music. Like, uh, you know, I'd sit around and play Neil Young and I'd play just tons and tons of different material, Led Zeppelin and all the classic rock stuff. And um, that's when I, I actually started playing gigs when I was uh, about, about 16. And those were the kinds of shows I was doing, um, playing Neil Young and sitting in the back in, in a corner of a restaurant. There was a, a place called uh, P.T. Slingers, which is just around the corner from where we were. And my two older brothers used to hang out there all the time. And uh, they went into the owners, um, Pete and Tim, and they said, you know, my, our younger brother, he, we hear him in the basement. He's really pretty good. So you, you should, you know, pass the hat and get him in here playing. And uh, P. 
Pete and Tim both said yes, and uh, they said, yeah, well, you're going to bring out all your friends, right? <laughs> so uh, Nothing has changed. So nothing has changed, but that was really, that was kind of the start for me. And, and what was that like to go out and play in front of people? I was blown away. I couldn't believe it, that I was actually, like, you know, even if we passed the hat, I remember I'd get, you know, 30 or 40 bucks from people throwing money in. And I'd say, wow, like they're actually paying me to do this. Are you kidding? This is fantastic. <laughs> so it was, um, it, it was really amazing. And then some things grew out of, out of that, even when I was young and, and technically underage to be playing <laughs> in, you write in bars. All? No, I didn't. I didn't write at all. I, um, you know, I, I just, I learned uh, tons and tons of songs and I, I could play all night long and, and that's what I did for for many many years I, I, I played cover songs in in bars five six nights a week so I'm probably gonna ask you this throughout but mm-hmm. at that point and playing in front of people playing cover tunes what was the greatest thing you learned oh the greatest thing that I learned well, what's a, what was an important lesson that you learned from from that experience of being a young musician playing cover tunes oh okay yeah from that perspective yeah I, I think that um, entertainment was so important and I learned that when I was young what I mean by that is it's not enough just to be really great at playing guitar or singing and sitting in the corner while somebody's you know eating chicken wings and watching a hockey game or something like that you have to figure out a way to get their attention and and not only that once you do that you have to figure out a way to be able to hold their attention so I I think that Part of that for me always came uh, kind of naturally, I would say. You know, I was kind of a class clown guy and, you know, I was always cracking jokes in school and stuff like that. And that that did translate to to me performing live in front of people. Mm -hmm. But that was an easy transition for me. You know, it wasn't it wasn't difficult to I'd say, okay, great. Give me a guitar and I'll sing some songs and try and entertain some people. That was an easy thing. So was it did it take long for you to decide, hey, I might want to do this for a living? That was a more difficult um, decision for me um, because I, I was very fortunate that I had I had some opportunities. I was uh, I was a really good soccer player, and I remember the soccer coach um, for Wilfrid Laurier University invited me to come out. And my grades weren't necessarily what they were supposed to be, but uh, I could get. It was basically the Canadian equivalent of like a scholarship, which mm-hmm. meant you got your courses and they made sure that you got everything you wanted and books and all that. And uh, I was kind of scheduled to do that, but I was very torn because I loved music so much and I loved playing soccer. It's really all I was doing in my in my teen years. And I played, you know, at quite a competitive level, uh, Southwestern Ontario. And I went to provincial tryouts when I was like 13 years old. So it was a big part of my life. But then I remember thinking that if I really wanted to um, be happy and, and pursue what it is that I saw myself doing. It would have to be with music. Hmm. So that was a difficult decision, but I guess in some ways soccer wasn't as big in, in Canada. I mean, I know people played, but there was no pro league at that point or was there? No, I, um, I had played with a, a friend of mine that had come over from England. Uh, he was from Burnley and at that time, Burnley, uh, Lancashire had a fourth division club and I'm dating myself here, but I went so far as to send them a videotape of me performing, <laughs> playing soccer rather. Right. And uh, they invited me to go over over uh, there as a, to an open tryout. Really? Which um, what does the videotape look like? You're just playing around the field, <laughs> kicking ball. It does. It's there's it's a lot oh, of highlights. It, it was in a game. Okay. Yeah, it was in a game. But anyway, that that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but I remember being really serious about because that's what I thought I was going to do. 
and mm-hmm. of course I was really young, but you know, I, I think that uh, once I realized what it would take to, to carry through with that, I, I just, I wasn't ready to do that. And I loved music too much, you know, yeah. music had just, you know, I, I say this all the time, but I really think that, that it's true. Um, as an artist, as a musician, you, you don't choose music. Music really chooses you. And I think a lot of, a lot of musicians would say that. Some will say it's a curse. Yeah, it's, it can be. There's certainly a lot of easier mm-hmm. paths you can take. I, I think everybody would agree with that. But, but between, between soccer and music, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure which one's easier. <laughs> well, I, I think you certainly have a longer career in music, hopefully. Yeah, anyway. that's true. <laughs> but yeah, no, so it's... That, that to me, I didn't really, um, you know, I, I didn't have a choice. I, I had to pick music. So I remember getting really serious about music, basically, when I was in high school and then right out of high school. And what did that mean to get serious about music? That, well, a huge part of my life was me, um, when I was in high school, being a co-op student in Kitchener. I was the first ever co-op student that they had at a big music store, which is still there, called Sherwood Music. Mm-hmm. And what was many significant things about that, but probably the most significant thing is that's where I met Rob Zabel, who's my my best friend. He was running the guitar department there. And um, I say that that's significant because we've worked together and we continue to work together. He's he's been my biggest musical influence and partner, really, uh, my whole life. So um, when I say get serious about it, Rob was already in a band, a wonderful band called the Groove Daddies. And they had uh, quite a bit of success in around the KW area and touring Canada as well. Kitchener-Waterloo, for those people who don't know. Yeah, Kitchener-Waterloo, right. So, and, you know, touring around Canada. And, and I remember thinking, wow, like this is a guy who's actually, you know, touring and, and, and doing it. And then Rob and I decided uh, um, at the end of his run with the Groove Daddies, which was a very successful band, we, uh, we started our own band and... Uh, all throughout all of this, I should I should say um, I was already developing a very deep love for blues. You know, I'd fallen in, in love with Stevie Ray Vaughan and realized where Stevie got all of his stuff from, and went back deeper and deeper and deeper. And mm-hmm. so for me, it was um, you know finding out about the music that I loved, which still to this day is is there's it's a lot of different styles that I love, right? But Rob and I were in a, a band that was like a pop rock band. We were initially called Marigold. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you even knew that. Did you know that? No. <laughs> yeah. We were called Marigold. And uh, and then after that, uh, we, we had to legally change our name um, because there was already a band in the States called Marigold. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so cliche. But so you got a letter. We got a letter. And we were like, wow. So anyway, we changed our name to Plasticine. Okay. So that's, I just have to go back a little bit. Yeah. So you looked at Rob. Here's a guy who's a touring musician, serious mm-hmm. musician who's touring across the country and thinking, wow, that's what I want to be. But he's also working in the same music store as you. Yeah. Did that concern you at all, that being a full-time musician also meant that you had to have another job? Um, I don't think that I was able to sort of process that at that point. Okay. Um, to think, well, why are you doing this? Well, when you're when you're home or when you're not touring as much as you should be, you need to find another way to make ends meet. Right. Um, I don't, obviously I know that a lot of people have to do that now, but, um, back then I, I didn't really think of it like that. And uh, I remember, I think Rob was impressed that I was already playing a lot of gigs. Like I invited him out to the jam night that I was hosting. And he's right. like, how are you playing in these places? 
So, um, and then, you know, we quickly grew into uh, just uh, the closest of friends and musical partners. So, And what did Plasticine do? Um, well, I think, you know, Plasticine did a, did a lot. We, um, back in that time frame, we, we did what we were supposed to do, I think, which which is you start making a name for yourself in key markets. Mm-hmm. So we started playing Toronto and getting people interested and inviting managers and agents out and touring, um, which, which we did. And then once people started turning their heads and sort of saying, hey, these guys are really doing something, um, we signed a, a record deal with um, a company called the Song Corporation. And um, we worked on that for a long time with a great A&R guy named uh, Alan. And uh, we, uh, you know, at that time, we thought that was the right thing for us to do. But the problem was that uh, the, the song corporation didn't really pan out the way we thought it was. And they went bankrupt right mm. in the middle of while we were doing our deal. Now, so tell me if I'm wrong, but is that the first time that's ever happened in the music industry? Yeah. <laughs> Again, um, somewhat of a cliche, of course, but, but no, that's, that's really what happened to us. And we were really upset about it. We were, I we were, guess so. We had a great agent behind us uh, named Ralph James. He really pushed really hard for us. We loved Ralph. He was at the agency group and uh, it almost became, you know, well, we worked so hard to get to this point. And, and for me, you know, we had a video on much music, which was, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what you do at that time. Um, for me, it was kind of like, you know, this this was really tough, and I, and I needed a break. Rob, at the time, um, I think wanted he wanted to say, well, let's let's get back in the van and get touring and go to the states, and and I I just I wasn't ready to do that after we'd covered so much ground. Had had it gone well and gone forward, and the record company not gone bankrupt, what would you have expected would have happened? That it would have you would have had an album, it would have been promoted on the radios, and you would have toured. Is that basically the the goal of the whole project? Well, we did. We had that. We had an album out. We actually had a couple out. And uh, it, it was, we had some, some degree of success at Canadian Radio, which is mild. Mm-hmm. It was mild for us anyway. And we were, we were touring Canada. Um, but, you know, I think that at that point, I was expecting it to go, you know, we were going to be a, a, a bigger Canadian band. You know, I, re- I remember feeling that wholeheartedly and, and Rob and I both thinking that and being on the Mike Bullard show and and telling Mike, you know, we're the real thing. We're we're really doing it. So then, when we lost, um, when we lost the deal, and uh, it wasn't happening, I just I felt like I wanted a, a change in in focus. And then, what was that change? That change um, it was still in music. The whole time that I was doing all this, I was still making essentially a living playing cover songs in in, in bars every night of the week right. when I wasn't on the road. Um, so then after that, um, Plasticine went down and I had an opportunity uh, to play with a great um, hip hop rock artist from Hamilton named Kazer. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kaz had signed a deal with Epic in New York and he really had some, some push and some clout behind him. And uh, when they came to me, uh, a great friend of mine, Craig Lapsley, who was playing in the band uh, with Kaz, came to me and said, you know, we've got some touring coming up and we really need kind of a a more seasoned veteran guitar player to come on board. And I was really excited because there was actually some, some money there. It's, mm-hmm. you know, like having toured Canada in the van, like so many people have to actually get a chance to go out and, and, you know, be it, be on a tour bus and tour Europe and go do some work in the States was a very attractive thing to me all the while trying to, you know, be able to, to make some money. So, um, that's, that's kind of what came along. Right. 
And musically, it didn't. It wasn't an issue that it was a different kind of genre that you're dealing with. No, uh, for me, it was it was kind of a a cool thing because it was different. It was mm-hmm. so different. I, I learned a lot playing playing that style of music, and I had already been playing so many different styles anyway right. that this was just another little thing that you have to learn how to do, which was was really cool. So, what did you learn from that experience? Now you're a sideman. Yeah, right, well, on a bigger scale. I, that's exactly what I would say is the biggest thing that that I had learned from that is is the role of a sideman, which uh, there's absolutely. You know, for me, I didn't feel like it was a right fit for me, but there's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity of playing with amazing front men myself, so I understand what that role is and how important that role is. But I also learned that if I stayed in that environment, that would, that would really be where I need to put all of my time and energy and focus into being a sideman. Mm-hmm. Which, again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with mm-hmm. that, but I always felt like I had more to offer. Right. And it was after that experience, really, that I said, if, if I'm going to be doing this, if I'm going to be touring and traveling and working so hard, I want it to be under my own name. And that became? That my first release was Honey. Okay. Yeah, that so was that, that you went directly into the blues. At that point. Well, blues again had always been been yeah. with me, and and all those you know going to see blues bands at every chance I could, and we'd be on the road, and I'd be like, oh, there's a blues band. I remember being in Edmonton, and I'm like, hey man, we got to go check out Blues on White. Let's go, you know. And meanwhile, I'm playing in, in in the rock club in Edmonton, right? Were you not in a country band at one point? I was, I was too. That was one of these sideman uh, projects that that I did. I was in a a country uh, touring band called the Gousset family. And this was all around the same time that I was in Marigold and Plasticine right. and still with Kazer and still doing gigs. And that was, um, that was a very interesting thing for me too, because this was um, a family from the Kitchener Waterloo area called the Gousset family. And it was uh, Jim Gousset, his, his son, Shane and his daughter, Nicole. And what they did was um, they were fiddle players and tap dancers. <laughs> it sounds very, very strange, but it was a really, really cool show. And they had just a, a fantastic band. And I was the guitar player in, in the band. And uh, that really opened my, opened my world to a, a very different style of, of, of playing guitar and something that I really embraced uh, at the time and still continue to do. Um, you know, you bring all of these elements into what you do and, and, and country for me was something that was so brand new. I, you know, discovered, you know, Danny Gatton and all these just crazy good players, guitar players. Yeah. And that just bled into everything else that, that, uh, that I was, I was doing, but we had, that, that was really amazing because I had the great opportunity to, to meet and play with Roy Clark in Branson, Missouri. Wow. And we played Opryland and, uh, we toured a lot in in Canada, especially in Ontario, Legion halls all over the place, and uh, it, it was it was a very different perspective from from a lot of the things that I'd done. What's your tap dancing like? They they were great. They were fantastic. No, what's yours? Tap My oh, I didn't have to tap dance. I was in the backing band, so I just I was just standing back. You there. didn't pick up any steps. Check, no, no, I didn't. I didn't, but uh, I did pick up a lot of other things and. I, one of those things that, that I remember taking taking from that experience was how great the musicians were in that band. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there was a, a wonderful piano player named John Dustin, who's very, very accomplished in, in not just Canadian music everywhere. And a great bass player at the time named Dave Levtoff, who was a teacher at, at Humber for a little while. And uh, that gig is where I met uh, one of my best friends, Dave King. Oh, okay. So I was the young guy in the band. I was the youngest guy. Shane and I were around the same age. And I was all of a sudden in a band with these really seasoned musicians that uh, I just tried to soak up as much as I could. I remember even when we were on the road and staying in the state somewhere, I'd say to Dave in the hotel room, can, can you, you know, give me a lesson? I want to learn. And he was, you know, a real jazz influenced player. But I was just so interested in, in learning as much as I possibly could. So he'd teach me jazz lines. And I remember learning Olio and Shane and I in rehearsal would be playing you know, some jazz heads, and I'm certainly not a jazz player by by any standard, but... Uh, Tell me about the the touring. Tell me about your impressions of touring back then. Well, for me, uh, that was a very different kind of touring than I had done with my rock bands. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I booked our first Canadian tour, so we played any place that would have us. Mm-hmm. And so that was one thing. And then being so, able... And can you make money on this? Like, when you mm. describe that, it's just like anybody who would have us. I, I was making money. I was not in the yeah. rock band. No, there's no money. <laughs> but, but, but the goal was to just get out there and cultivate a fan base every way possible. That would be yeah. the goal of this, right? Oh, yeah. And you just travel in a van and then go across Canada. Like, I don't even know if it's a relatively unknown band or even if it's somewhat known how difficult it is to actually make money on a tour going across Canada because of the geography we're dealing with. Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, honestly, it is because of the geography. It's And, and any touring band in Canada, um, they'll tell you that's that's the fact. I, I always I always get a chuckle after, you know, going to, uh, going to Europe and, and guys, when I toured in Europe, and they say, oh, we've got a long drive today. It's uh, four hours today. I'm like... <laughs> Four hours? Are you kidding me? It's like it's like next door. That's fantastic. So you get you get used to that, and you know. What's the most brutal drive you've had? Oh, the most brutal drive. I don't even know if I can remember off the top of my head. There were some bad ones. I remember I drove back from Thunder Bay by myself, by myself with the band. But right. I did all the driving. When I say by myself, and. It just got quiet, and the guys were like, just let him go. He's still driving. <laughs> 13 hours in, he's still driving. Just let him go. Because you get in the zone, right? But I, I can't remember exactly. I haven't, I haven't really done uh, a lot of really, really long ones like that in a while. But I don't think people realize just how brutal a tour can be and how much work is involved in getting from one place to another. Yeah, I certainly didn't. I mean, that's a lot of people that, that don't do this they just they just see the finished product right they they see you as a a band getting up on stage and you're giving it your all and you're trying to create this emotional connection but they don't see that you know you've been in van for 12 hours and you've barely had time to to even eat eat dinner and you're on stage in front of people and you're trying to you know do all the things that you need to do right so it's there's like i said earlier it's uh, there's a lot of easier things that you could be doing and hopefully you get to a point where you're able to concentrate on the things that, that you should be concentrating on. Mm-hmm. But it's tough. And to get to that point requires a lot of work. 
Yes, and that, that brings us to the, the business aspect of, of things, which... Yeah, so when you decided to release your own album, Honey, and then decided to go the blues route, did you have a plan? Did you know how you were going to conquer the world? Um, I, I didn't have a plan the way I would approach it now. I mean, that's 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. So, But my plan was, I, I just knew that I wanted to to do something with my own name on it and uh, write all the material. And I just knew that I had to, I had to get an album out. And, and I think, I don't know how much further past that I had considered it was going to go, but the success of honey, which was, was really overwhelming for me at the time. Cause you know, being in a guy who was in a band and then a side man and playing clubs and bars and doing all that stuff to, to have, to put out something with your own name on it. And have it do incredibly well. It was was so encouraging for me. It just kind of solidified for me that I was doing the right thing. What was the biggest adjustment of becoming your own band leader or to take on this project of your own? Well, I guess a, a big adjustment was now you know you're the guy. You're 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 the front man, and mm-hmm. and coming from from being a, a side man and or not. I was a front man in plastic scene, but there was also Rob as a, a front man right. and also Rob uh, being the, the principal writer that I worked with back then. That was a big adjustment for me going, you really need to have um, your own material to play. And this entire time that I was doing all the things that we talked about, everyone along the way was telling me, you need to write more, you need to write more. And that when Honey came out, I really realized how important it is, and uh, had some some songs that you know I still think some of the best material that I've written mm-hmm. is, is is on that record. So how many years of work was it to get to that point of those songs? Um, I had been writing the entire time, and I had had songs that I'd written that were on Plasticine, uh, th- those records, and I'd co-written a lot with Rob, which I continue to do to this mm-hmm. day. So it was a it was a long build up. I mean, it was it was years. I had little things that I'd have to finish, or that I would go and say, "Oh, I like this," or "I like that." So it was it was years of build up to get to that point. And not necessarily all just your basic blues songs. I mean, that's what I really like about you. We've we've talked about this in the past, but you've written some amazing songs that I think are like a really strong songs that that I listen to on a regular basis. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, that was, you know, that's something as a writer that I've always struggled with, um, which w- as soon as you say that you're a blues artist or mm-hmm. people say this person is a blues artist, and I know you and I have talked about this, but perhaps your listeners don't realize this. There's such, to me, there, there are parameters that people always try and keep you within mm-hmm. as a blues writer. It's easier that way. It is, yeah. and I understand that. This Here's what this is. Here's this box, and that's where, where you fit in. But I've never liked that as a writer and as an artist. I, I've always felt like all these different styles of music that I've played over the years, that's what makes an artist unique. Mm-hmm. And that's a common thread that happens with any artist, I think, is that you know you can have all these different influences, but in the end, you take it all in and what comes out sounds like you. Right. And I'm, I'm a firm believer of that. So I... I try to always remember that. And, and you know, as soon as you change a song that you're trying to write, you love blues anyway. I'm steeped in blues. Anything I do to me is blues. Mm-hmm. Even even in, when I was in a rock band, we were writing very bluesy, blues-based rock right. material. 
so yeah, I, I think that, that that is a challenge. Um, and that was a challenge for me that, that I, I still, you know, have to work towards all the time. But the song I was thinking of, and you know, this is soul searching. So when I think of that song, like to me, it's one of the most stunning songs I've heard. Like I, I can listen to it over and over again. It's not a blues song. And I presume that when you played it, whether it be after your first album or you, you play it on stage right now, it's not like anybody's going, hey, that's not blues. I mean, it's just a great song. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm very proud of that song. And that, strangely enough, it's one of those songs, when I'm talking to people about songwriting or if anybody ever asked me about that, that song is unique in that it came to me very, very quickly. And I just remembered I did, it wasn't a lot of work that song it just happened and I just I was able to let it happen and mm -hmm. stay out of the way of the song and it just that was it and that song seems to achieve what I would like to do as a writer which is get an emotional connection across with somebody that's listening to your material mm -hmm. so I don't you know that was a really emotional time for me because you know we'd just been married and my my daughter was born and there were all these things that, that sort of came in together um, that ended up in being that song or part of that entire process. It's interesting because <clears throat> I've talked to other songwriters and the one thing that seems to be repeated a number of times is, is the fact that the better songs are sometimes you just channel them. It just comes through you. And, and that if you're working on a song for five years, that song is probably not going to be as good as the one that just came to you, which I find the whole concept really interesting because I don't write songs. But I mean, is it is that what it's like? You obviously spend a lot of time writing and some come easier than others. Yeah, absolutely. For me, and I always say that songwriting for everybody that you talk to, every songwriter, anybody that tries to write a song, the process is different. Mm -hmm. But I can say what works best for me is as much as I can get done when that moment of inspiration hits. So whether it's a lyric or whether it's the music or it's both together, whatever it is, if I can get a song completely done as quickly as possible when it's coming to you and you're emotional, that's what works best for me. Now you're going to come back to it. You're going to change it a little bit. But if you're like, oh, I have this really cool idea and perhaps you have to go do something else or you get it down or whatever, and then you come back to it, some sometimes I'm like, okay, well, that was a cool idea, but I don't know what I was on about. It's just not, mm -hmm. you know, so if you can get it like 80% done or whatever it is, 70, 80% done and go, wow, this, you know, we have a, okay, we're going to massage it here a little bit. We're going to add a bridge. We're going to change the arrangement. That That's fine. But if I had to give advice, I, I would say to get as much done as you can when, when the inspiration hits. And how does, how does songwriting come to you? Because I know you, you release albums on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Is it the motivi motivated by the deadline of the next album or the next project, or is writing just a constant thing that happens all the time and you're inspired while you're driving down the street and you just take out your phone and record whatever comes to you? Well, quite honestly, the, the, the release date is motivation for me. I wish I could tell you that I was one of these artists that wakes up in the morning and all you want to do is sit down and, you know, have a coffee and write a song. That's not like that for me. The, the motivation of, of trying to be a current successful artist is you need material. And anybody that you're working with, if you're lucky enough to have people around you that are working with you, are always aware of that and always nudging you in that direction you know um but but i think i think that's that's the truth that's that's the mm -hmm. way it is you're a musician that's 
you have to constantly come out with with new material. Hopefully, your your material is getting better and better all the time. So yeah, it's not. I I have to press myself to write. I do, and it's always been like that ever since I was a teenager. And and so you have this close relationship with Rob, mm-hmm. who's often who's your producer, who's your co writer, who's mm-hmm. your best friend. Um, is there how was that process? You you write something and you take it to Rob and go, what do you think about this? And he fixes it or he gives gives suggestions or is it like you sit down with him go let's write something like how does the song writing partnership work a little bit of both really most mostly uh, I'll come to Rob and I'll go I have an idea about a song like this and um he'll go wow that's really really great or you know maybe well that's how about this and he'll have a different idea about the song or maybe we should change the key it's better for your voice here maybe we should slow it down and all those producing things but from a writing perspective I'm always bouncing ideas off of him as well and you know even to our our latest release or the the most current one that's about to come out uh, I probably relied on Rob more heavily on this record than I than I have on any previous ones so there's an amount of trust that you have with him and I think that that is part of the reason why the work that we've done together has been so successful, right, to, you know, a natural fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, you know, Let Me Prove It To You was very successful. And uh, I, I'm hoping that this, this new record is going to be as successful. I think at the, at the core of it is there's never any thinking of me, me thinking, well, you know, why is Rob doing this or doing that? We both completely trust each other mm-hmm. and I know he has my best interest at heart. And so you trust it. So you're able to get through things, I think a lot quicker mm-hmm. instead of all these other, you know, and, and I've been fortunate like that too, even, you know, with Dave King, when he produced blues and color, I felt the same way that, that, uh, you know, Dave and I had an idea of the kind of record that we wanted to make at the time coming from me being produced my, my first record, you know, self-produced. Right. And it, it's, I've been lucky to work with producers that, that are always like that. So every project that I've known you, or I've, I've kind of worked with you through, you've kind of gone different ways. One day, um, and one year it was the acoustic album. Mm-hmm. And the next one was a little more heavier, I wouldn't say heavy rock, but it was a heavier album, like much heavier than just your basic blues album. Yeah, from and especially in reaction to the acoustic album, tell me about the new album. And, and is, is it difficult to come up with that next direction? Well, I think that as an artist, part of your role and part of the artists that I have always looked up to are artists that continue to push themselves. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's for me. I always feel like, well, I've I, I've I feel like I've done this. What is the next thing that I want to do? And I think that the next record that I'm doing is doing that as well. You're, you're constantly, I'm not going to say you're reinventing yourself or anything like that. Cause at the end of the day, it's, it's still me writing and singing and playing and performing. But I, I like to feel like I'm not doing the same old thing. And right. I like to feel like I'm challenging myself and surrounding myself with people that, that challenge me as well. So, and, and I think that we've done that again. So while this, this next record, um, no time like now, when it comes out, I think that perhaps some people might go, oh, this this is a little bit outside of this line or that line. Uh, you know, I hope that they still get the emotion out of it and the intent that it's 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 me and this is just me moving forward as an artist. But at this point, this is what your fifth album. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and I don't know if any of the last four were really similar. Like each one, you could say is different from the previous one. 
I, th- I think so. Um, you know, and that's, that's something again that, that I, I really like it when, when bands do that, mm-hmm. even as a music fan, you know, and, you know, like look at a guy like Prince. I mean, the, right. the, unbelievable, the body of work and all the stuff that he's done. And there's, there's countless artists that do that. So sometimes things work amazingly well, but at the end of the day, it's you and it's what you're putting out there and it's, it's what you want to say. But do you worry on the other hand that maybe they won't follow you? your audience? might say, hey, I like the acoustic album. Why is he rocking out here? Is that, does that ever come into play or do you not care? No, that comes into play. For me, it does. It's, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a concern. It's a concern because you have hopefully a decent fan base of people that love what it is that you do. But I always try and remind myself that if, if people love what I do, if they're really Steve Strongman fans, they're, they're going to come along with you for the ride. Mm-hmm. So if you make if you make a record that perhaps some people don't like, that's fine. It doesn't mean that they're going to go, oh, geez, he made this terrible record. Forget it. I never want to hear from the guy again. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully your true fans are are, are your fans, right. and they're going to they're going to come along with you. And you seem to have that. You seem to have this very dedicated following, especially in your hometown. Like you seem to be a really big deal in <laughs> Hamilton, right? <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. Um, yeah, I. I mean, honestly, it's, you have a core group of people and you try and build that no matter where you go. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been able to do that in, in Hamilton and, and Kitchener. Kitchener, Waterloo, of course. But it's, it's, it's really hard to, to carry that over um, and, and make that the case everywhere. But, you know, now it's all about connecting with that core base of fans and right. building that core base of fans through social media and all the things that you have to do. So it's, um, I just... I'm thankful for the people that are interested in what I'm doing, and I hope that they come along and they just but stay connected. But you following in Quebec. I know I you've gone to Europe and, and tried to establish a, a following there. Like, How does that all that come about? Like, How do you decide, okay, we're going to go to France or we're going to go to Belgium, whatever? Well, for me, a lot of the, the, the stuff in Quebec came on board because of uh, a person that you know, of course, Brian Slack. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been very instrumental in... In my career, and uh, we saw an opportunity to to get me into markets in Quebec, where, as you know, the, the it's it's a it's a different kind mm-hmm. of culture there. There, there, you know, I always say the biggest difference between artists in Quebec or people in Quebec, rather, is in certain parts of the world, people will say Steve Strongman. I, I've never heard of that guy. Why would I buy a ticket and go and see it? And in Quebec, I hear people saying Steve Strongman. I've never heard of that guy. We should go and see him. Hmm, so it, it's a very interesting, you know, dynamic that happens there. And they're so supportive of their own artists as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, we all know it's like a little kind of slice of Europe right in the middle of mm-hmm. our country, which is, you know, fantastic. And then, you know, having some success there and getting into Europe and, and just, just working really hard and, and trying to make that connection that, that I've made here at home um, overseas. So the other thing about the new album is it's now the first album that you're going with somebody else. Or a record label. Yeah. Tell me about that and how if is what made you decide that would be the good thing to do at this point? To me, that was a very natural progression. Um, what happened was I had a relationship with a record company called Sonic Onion in mm-hmm. Hamilton. And I had licensed my, my last um, two, or they distributed my last two records. So I already had a relationship with them. And things were going really well, and they started to have some success um, in the management world with a wonderful artist named Tara Lightfoot. 
And Tim and I, who's the head and the whole team there, um, we decided, I, I came to them and I said, you know, I, I'm really looking for somebody to work with. And I'd had a management deal before that that didn't really go, it was a mutual agreement that it didn't really go the way either one, one of us wanted it to go. So I decided that it was time for me to move on. Can I, sorry, can I just ask what that would mean? Yeah. Just, I don't need specifics, but give me sure. an example of it didn't go the way you wanted to go. Like he had a different idea or he or she had a different idea of mm-hmm. what you should be and you didn't agree or is that? No, it was a really um, mutual thing in, in that we gave ourselves a certain amount of time and set some goals for us. We were saying, okay, let's say an eight-month period or six-month period. Um, we want to have this in place. We want to have this in place. And if at any point of that either one of us were unhappy, then we were just going to shake hands okay. and step away and that that was it and that's what happened you know I I saw that it wasn't going the way I wanted and you know that's these are the kinds of decisions that I think an artist has to make Mm -hmm. if if, depends on what you want to do of course but for me that was the right decision so when you make these decisions Mm -hmm. if you don't mind me asking is it solely your decision is it a band decision is it a husband and wife decision like when it's your career is it solely up to you because you're now dealing with a manager who oftentimes makes that decision with you, right? Yeah, that, no, that's it. And I don't mind you asking at all. No, I probably drive my, my closest friends absolutely <laughs> nuts. And I'm really, I'm very lucky, I should say this, that, that I, that first of all, I have such an amazing supporting family. My wife is incredible. We've been together for, for over 20 years now. Wow. She's always known what it is that, that I have in mind and what it is that I want to do. And this is all I've done. So I, I think that I'm, incredibly lucky to have that mm-hmm. so so yeah I, I i i bounce things off of her all the time um and say what do you think about this what do you think about that and then having a guy like rob who's my best friend no matter what aspect in my career i'm talking about he's he's a sounding board and it's the same with dave king dave mm-hmm. king has been playing with music with me for 20 years and uh having that core group of people and bouncing every artistic and business decision off of off of several different people allows me to come up with a more informed decision, and I'm I'm really thankful and grateful that I have that. Mm-hmm. Now once again, it's about trust, right? It is about trust, and if you're you know, if if I'm just trying to make decisions all on my own, I mean, I I don't know how I do it because <laughs> it, sometimes it's it's honestly it's just so hard to know what is the right thing to do, mm-hmm. and I have made mistakes for sure, um, but. Hopefully we all learn from those and we, and we try and just keep moving forward. So what do you hope to get out of this new deal? What's, what would be a goal of this new relationship with the new record company? Um, I will say that for me, making a decision like I have, um, so much of my life and my time has been spent on the business element of music, about being a musician. Mm-hmm. And that has been out of necessity. So unfortunately, this would be like getting gigs. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, like I know you and I have talked about it a lot. So like you're, I'm on the phone constantly, and you're trying to book tours, and you're dealing with if you have an agent, you're dealing with that. Mm-hmm. You're trying to write. You're trying to do all the things that that you should, but most of it, a lot of it, is administrative work. Right. And um, I, I think that where I'm at now in my career, I've I've been very very fortunate to get to a point that. I have other people that are helping me do all of these things solely so that I can focus on music more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when I sat down with, with new management, they were asking me, well, what's the pyramid 
look like? You know, is it 70 business or music, 70% music versus 30% business? And I'm like, no, it's like 70, 80% business versus 20 or 30% music. And right away they were like, well, we need to change that. That's it. So that, that's been part of the attractive mm-hmm. thing for me. And, uh, I also think that as, as an artist, if you're, if you're able and lucky enough to get to a point where you have something to manage, I always thought that was an interesting perspective because so many artists are trying to do everything. And in a lot of ways, like all those other things aren't like, they're not your job. That's not your job. Like I never got into music because I wanted to be in music management. Right. <clears throat> I got into music because I'm an artist and that's where I want to focus my time and energy. But having said that, these things all need to get done. Right. And if they're not getting done by you, you're you have to have music. You're not making music. Yeah. So it, it's, I don't know if some of the other people you've spoken with uh, have that problem, but that's been an ongoing concern for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, just trying to, to navigate all the things on a daily basis that need to get done. And I should say I'm, I'm so lucky and, and fortunate now. Like I have uh, an assistant, Gail Broderick is amazing. She, she's, just proven to be invaluable in all the things that she's that she helps me with and that's like on a day-to-day basis you know I have have management have a record company behind me and it's it's going it's going really well that's good it is really good I'm it's a very exciting time because as much as I've had success in in the past I feel like now I've, you know, been around enough and you sort of know a little bit about the way things work that if you can take more time getting things in place, uh, you know, you, you, you can make more out of your swing, you know. Is it easy for you to let that go? I, I know there's a lot of things you probably don't want to do, but I mean, just letting go of a bit of control, I think, might be <laughs> difficult sometimes. I'm not saying spe- specifically you, but for anybody, because yeah. when you do it, you get things done. You know that, or you know where it's getting done. Absolutely, and that that is it, it's difficult for me. It, it's difficult to relinquish that ability to say okay. And plus, you know, it's you know for me, it's I know if I have to get something done, I just I focus on it and I get it done. But having said that, when you're doing things on a much larger scale, mm-hmm. which is what we're, we're working towards. They take longer, and when when any at any point in the process, you have different people that are capable and should be making decisions. You have to let them make those decisions and hear them out, and and that slows down the process of everything. But having said that, that's that's why you're working with them. So larger scale in terms of this new record deal and this new management company, yeah, is that larger scale in Canada? Is that larger scale getting into the U.S.? Or Europe, or what's... It's all of the above, yeah. It is, all of the above. So th- so this is coming out everywhere, and Sonic Onion is, is uh, working with Sony Music Canada, so they're involved in, in the process as well. And we're so early in the process, I should say, that as we're doing this, that uh, there's a lot of stuff that, that looks great, but we'll, we'll have to see how it all turns out and have mm-hmm. to see as we make changes at every step of the process. But it's a, it's a much... Um, this will be... A larger release than I've done previously. No need. At the same time, the music world has changed drastically, even mm. since the time that I've known you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it keeps changing, like on a daily basis. Does that concern you? I mean, how does it that affect you, and how does that concern you? It's that's a huge concern. <laughs> it is, <laughs> to put it mildly. No, honestly, 
it's it's a huge concern or you know I think everybody that's listening to this will probably understand how much the music business has changed even since you and I have been friends and talking about all of these things that that um that happen in the music business but it's I mean what would be a, a, what would be the biggest change that you see well I mean honestly for me you're you're making records, you're making music, you're writing music and touring and performing music in a world that isn't buying music in the same way. Mm-hmm. That just sounds insane, but that's what's happening. So, and, and yet, if you don't record another album, then you probably don't get a lot more festivals or more gigs, right? Right now, we're in the we're in the area that you still have to record an album to get something out there. But right. I I firmly believe that the music business and perhaps not in the genre of music that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's a singles-driven market. Um, I, I really, I might be wrong, but I believe that the days of, of artists spending all this money recording a full traditional album are numbered. I think people are going to start just saying, why am I recording 12, 13, 14 songs and spending all this money when I can just release one single and put it out on iTunes or digitally release it, and that's the release. And three, four, five months later, you do another one. And that will be, I think, what, what people are moving towards. Um, you did know, you ever think about doing that? Uh, yeah, I did, but I still think, and that might be something that I look to in the future. I've, I've given it a lot of thought. Um, I think basically that um, that might be a way that seems to make the most sense for people to continue moving their career forward. Mm-hmm is to do that because it's, it's, it's a huge, difficult process to record and still try and tour and do all the things that you have to do when, you know, money's limited and mm-hmm. doing a single would be a lot easier. But all of the other things in terms of the musical landscape that we were talking about have changed so much. Now, I mean, I would say that it's, it's so important to have all your social media things in place and right. all of those platforms taken care of. Uh, I, I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, you know. Facebook and all the, all the other things. And is there a way to? that you can measure? Like, I mean, do you see direct measurement of your connection with your fans through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever? I'm just starting to, I'll say, pay attention to those platforms a lot more than I I used to. I'm very late to the game on that, but it's, it, I'm just not really bent that way. You know what I mean? It just kind of rubs me the wrong way to have to, not have to do it, but in order to continue that connection right. to go, Oh, here I am. I'm doing this now. And we're doing this. I, I don't know. I just feel like, I don't know. It drives me nuts when I see people are like, Oh, I'm having a tea and I just had a nice bath. You go, I mean, but you know what I mean, yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah. just, uh, it's uh, unfortunately, it's a necessary evil well, in just, our business. I, but I wonder point. if it, you know, when all is said and done, I, I wonder if it's really benefiting them anymore that we, we see them in their bath. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like I just, I don't know. Yeah, it keeps your name out there yeah. or whatever. But I don't know if you were to measure the level of success if, you know, thank God we saw that picture of him in the bath because that's what made me go buy that new CD because yeah, that's probably not the case. It's interesting, and I, I agree with you. I, I don't know the answer, too. I, I can definitely say that what we're, you know, trying to do is, is turn that connection right. um, and those social media platforms into people coming to live shows, people purchasing music, people, you know, buying tickets to come and see you play. Turn that into, you know, making money as an artist. And mm-hmm. how do you do that? Well, 
you know, it, it certainly, uh, I like to use this as an example. I went and did a show in Quebec and it was a great show and there were 250 people or 300 people in the theater. And the very same night, a good friend of mine, he recorded in his basement him singing a song. And the next day, or the next, you know, five days later, I'd say he had 2,000 hits. And I'm thinking, I just it just took me like eight hours to drive to the show in Quebec and I performed in front of 300 people. And this guy was in his basement and now 3,000 people or however many people are watching this. And right. So in terms of hard numbers, that that's kind of striking, you know? It is, but then I also think that there's a lot of things that are just momentary. So 3,000 people watched it. How many have actually gone on to go to his website? Oh, yeah. Or purchase a single or an album or whatever by him. So it's just for that moment, yeah, okay, that was fun. And how many people I even watched the whole thing? You know what I mean? And, and then you just think, okay. Like, I don't know if any money comes out of that, even though he had 3,000 views. Like, that's what I question. Yeah. There are definitely times when there is a monetary reward for having a very uh, a viewable video. But I, I think all of these things are, are leading towards, uh, are to the same end, which is it's promotion mm-hmm. for you. And interesting, it's, it's promotion that doesn't really cost you um a lot of money so it's that's promotion and this is all to get your name out there and have people go yeah i saw this i want to go and see what this guy's all about or signing up for your mailing list and you having a direct link with people that are interested in what it is that you're doing that's really all it is and at least for me because you know we don't see any money from that uh, not unless you're up and you're getting ads and all those things that are that are placed into your youtube content i don't you know, I, I don't think that it makes a difference, but it does make a difference in terms of getting your name out there and, and people being interested in what you're doing and developing that connection. So tell me about the new album. You, you said the name, but if you could repeat it and then tell me about why it's a different direction for you. The album is called No Time Like Now. And uh, that's the name of the first single on mm-hmm. the album. And, you know, for me, as we discussed earlier, um, I think that artistically, this is um, me trying to, you know, branch out a little further than I have in the past, and and feeling really good about doing that, playing some different styles um, on there. It's all again, it's all deeply rooted in blues to me, but I think it's it's a more modern feeling blues record. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was produced by Rob Zabo again, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Rob and I co-wrote all the songs on this. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it, it's, I don't want to say it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a bit of a different record than people are used to. And th- that's exciting to me. You said it was delayed till March, the release date. We're in November. Yeah, that's right. So does that just drive you nuts? <laughs> well, that's very good. It, it doesn't drive me nuts. It, it's, um, it can be frustrating for me because I want everything to happen in, with such immediacy. I'm excited. I want to get it out in the world right now. And, and initially it was supposed to come out in October. And then we have to sit down with uh, management and the record company and say, okay, here's how this is going to look and here's why we feel. And they didn't tell me. They didn't say, we're not doing this. Forget it. Right. They said, here's what we think we should do. And we had a discussion about it. And that's part of working, you know, with professionals like that. And it made sense. It made sense that we delayed the release um, to get things in place so that that we can try and have as much success with this record as we want to have. And all of those things take time. So and from I, now till March, are you playing these songs or not? 
Yeah, we're starting to introduce them. I've got some shows coming up, and I'm starting to to play a couple of uh, the songs. Certainly, the single, and uh, you know, I'm I'm really thrilled about this record because I have uh, I have some special uh, a very special guest I should say on it. Um, the great Randy Bachman is actually wow. uh, playing uh, on a song with me, and um, you you have a history with him. I do. I have a history. Um, I went out and. Uh, played with uh, Tal Bachman, which is Randy's son. He, mm-hmm. you know, had a huge hit with She's So High. And I went and stayed at Randy's house in Vancouver, in White Rock, actually. When when Randy was living there, I stayed with him for a month and played in a, in a band with his son. That was during all that those other things that right. I was saying in my early 20s. But, so Randy has been a huge supporter, and uh, we've, we've kept in contact um, for all these years to see what, you know, what I've been up to, and plays me on a show and he's just such a great guy so when we were doing this record um rob and i we were discussing the possibility of having a cover song on mm-hmm. there and uh i remember thinking you know i've always loved randy's stuff like it, it didn't matter what area you're talking about the right. songwriting is just so amazing for sure and uh so i had an idea of doing uh you ain't seen nothing yet with the stuttering, B- BTO tune. It's funny you say that with the stuttering, right? Because that was a, that was a consideration. You know what I mean? It was a huge hit, one yeah. of the many hits that have had stuttering as it. So I did my own take on it, and uh, I just thought I have you know Randy's a friend. I can I can send it to him. So I sent it to him. I emailed him an MP3 saying, "Hey, I'm doing a new record, and uh, we just demoed this tune up. What do you think?" And he emailed me back right away, and and he loved it. He said, I absolutely love it. This is super cool. And so I emailed him back and I said, do you feel like playing a guitar solo on this with me? And he said, absolutely, no problem. So we finished the tune and Randy played on it. And uh, I sent him the final version. And then he got in touch with me. Um, This was when I recorded it back in in July, it was actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, I love this tune. And I was wondering if you want to come out to the CNE and debut your version of the song with me at the CNE. How cool is that? It's pretty cool. It was honestly that's pretty cool. So that's what I did. So oh, yeah. so in his show he had you up and they played the song the way you play it on your album. Is that correct? That is correct. So it wasn't his band doing it and you were just joining them. I have to say that was such uh, an amazing thing. So in his show mm-hmm. That song is such a hit and such a massive hit. He really felt like he had to do his version of it. So then later in oh, the okay. set, so he played You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. And then he said, it was, it's really cool. Something along the lines of, you know, this to me is as cool as Lenny Kravitz doing American Woman. This is a great guitar player, Steve Strongman, my friend from Hamilton. And he's going to do a version of the song. This is the new version of You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. And it was with his band. And these guys were not up there faking it. They lifted the song that I sent them. My version, it's, you know, yeah. people hopefully will check it out and hear it. And it was it was just so cool to to be able to do that. That was the first time I ever played that song live. The first <laughs> yeah. time, other than recording it, yeah, yeah, yeah. the first song, time I ever played it, like, you know, live in front of people was with Randy and his band at the CNE. Wow. <laughs> Did anybody get a video of it? Yeah, there's some video floating around of oh, it. Oh, that's good. There absolutely is. You yeah. should do a video with them. I would love to do that. You never know that that yeah. could be part of it. That's very cool. Well, this is an exciting time for you. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm. I. You know. I feel. I because we push back the release. It's been interesting to have more downtime for me than I have in a long time. So enjoying that time, you know, spending it at home with my my wife and kids. 
all, all the while realizing that hopefully it's going, it's about to get a lot busier, which it is. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go, the other thing, and I'm not even sure what the, when this was going to be made public, but you do a series of Christmas concerts Yeah. in, in Hamilton, Southwestern Ontario. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. I do um, a Christmas show in Hamilton. This all actually started with a Christmas show that, that Rob Zabo and I do in, in the KW, Kitchener-Waterloo area. And we're up to our 12th year of doing it. And, uh, you know, it just started out with us saying, let's get together and do another show. And it went so well. Um, thankfully, they're always sold out or, or very near sold out. I think they're all sold out. But um, we just we get together and play music and do whatever whatever we want and have a blast. And then... So this isn't your regular Steve Strongman show? No, that's a Steve Strongman, Rob Zabo show. But my regular Steve Strongman show, which I had the idea of doing um, in Hamilton, because, you know, when you're touring, you don't get a lot of opportunity to play mm. right at home. At least not as, you know, a ticketed artist. You right. can get out and play with your buddies and jam or whatever. But um, So I decided I wanted to do a Christmas show. And that's, uh, that's going to be December the 10th at the Bay City Music Hall. And you're basically doing all Christmas songs? No, I'm doing... <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I had one year where I played a lot of Christmas material. So this is this is my sixth year in a row, and I think I did like maybe five or six songs that were Christmas tunes, and I took such heat from people about that. They're like, I've been around all day in the mall shopping. Last thing I want to do is come out and see Steve Strong playing Christmas material. So I I really limit it. I I only Good do a, a couple of a couple of cools, and and the songs that I do, you know, it's. They're blues-style Christmas tunes, and, and, and it's fun to change it up, but it's going to be Steve Strongman material. Good. Well, thank you so much for doing this. You've been a oh. great friend from the very beginning. I really appreciate you being part of this podcast. Well, series. thank you, Marco, for having me in to do this. I, f- uh, I feel like we could just talk like this for hours. We could do that. The only difference is there's microphones in front of us <laughs> when you and I are talking for hours sometimes without that. But. I, no, I usually actually carry <laughs> No, I really appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you so Steve. much.